Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Cloda Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Today's podcast is very proudly sponsored by my absolute favorite Irish skincare brand, Ella and Joe Cosmetics. With formulas that are powered by plants and backed by science, Ella and Joe are dedicated to creating high quality, luxurious skincare products that actually deliver results and that create magic moments in your day. Whether your skin is dry, dull, or just in need of a pick-me-up, the Ella and Joe range will put the joy back into your skincare routine. Find your skin confidence again by shopping Ella and Joe's beautiful products on ellaandjoe.ie using discount code UNSPOKEN for 15% off. Today I am joined by Sinead, who has very bravely agreed to share her Unspoken with us. Sinead speaks to me about battling her emotions as she grew up in a home where emotions weren't welcome. Panic attacks, debilitating low mood, feeling worthless and like a burden, and her aha moment when, aged 21, suddenly everything started to make sense. Sinead's story is one of resilience, perseverance and courage, and I feel so grateful to her for sharing her Unspoken with us. Sinead, welcome to Unspoken. Thanks for having me, Clota. I'm delighted to have you. Take us back to where your Unspoken first began. The first memory I have of having a a really overwhelmingly emotional experience, I was 11. And I had been at a pool party with a friend of mine and a group of other kids. Um, And the bus had left without myself and my friend. And I was so overwhelmingly upset. And then completely separately, I remember kind of like a dream. I was in the middle of it. I don't remember how it started, but I was trying to get into a very small space between my my childhood bed and my radiator. And I, I just, maybe for some sense of protection, I'm not really sure why. And I was having a, a full on panic attack and I just couldn't breathe. And I was just so upset. And when I think back now, to to that experience and and subsequent panic attacks that I had in childhood before my bipolar diagnosis um it it was all very internal like I had no concept of what a panic attack was outside myself there was just something happening within me and I had I couldn't put it in context I didn't understand that it was something that happened to other people as well and what was happening inside of you in those moments it was just frantic and I suppose chaotic and it even is now when I'm not very well. But as a child, there's just no way to to understand that. Or there wasn't then. I mean, this was the mid to late 90s. So there wasn't the information. Maybe now, if I think of my girls when they're that age, I'd have more access to information and they probably would as well. There'd be more education for them. That just didn't exist. But you felt frantic and chaotic within yourself in those moments. Yeah. And I remember coming down from it, from that panic attack at 11 and just sitting on my parents' bed with my mum. And I remember her 
uh, or my sense was that she was quite taken aback. Um, and I suppose before that, I don't really have many memories of childhood. Um, and all of my memories that are quite vivid are after I got sick, which maybe makes no, in, in some way makes no sense to me um, because I had a perception that maybe I was very happy before then. And you'd think, well, maybe you would remember joyful moments equally as well as as um, as difficult moments. But I don't actually know was I joyful or was I happy. I just I just have solid memories from when I was unwell onwards. And what were your teens like? So you had that experience age eleven. What was life like? I mean, my teens were awful. When I think back now, I, mean, I know everybody, everybody has a, a rotten time during their teenagers. It's such a turbulent time with your emotions anyway. But I'd had that that experience at 11 and I thought, well, I'm going to secondary school. There'd be new people there. Be I just thought it would be better. And God, it was worse. It was just so isolating. Um, and I struggled a lot with making friends. I suppose looking back now, I, I probably came across as quite desperate and needy for connection. Um, and then I just got angry and I was just angry, angry, angry all the way, um, probably until I was 17 or 18. And I, I met my husband and I went to university and that took me out of that. But the teens were just a mess of just anger and and hypomania, which I didn't realize I was having at the time. But I was awake for two or three days at a time. Um, and I just thought, this is great. <laughs> I can <laughs> just stay up and like write and listen to music and um, I was probably in my mid twenties, and I thought, God, why can't? Why am I not staying awake? I used to be able to do that, and then yeah. I and then I realised that that wasn't normal. <laughs> that not everybody did that. Um, so yeah, the the teens were just messy, and I had no information. I had no understanding or knowledge of what was happening to me, and it's not like having knowledge or understanding makes mental illness any easier to deal with. But I think being without information makes it worse, if mm. that makes sense. And you said you perhaps may have been perceived or could have been perceived as very needy mm. or very desperate. Why do you think that was? I was just so desperate to have a close friend, like a best friend. And I and I and I don't know why. I have best friends now, but I have a couple of them. Yeah. But I just had this idea that I needed like one best friend. And there was something about knowing that there could be somebody who wanted to spend time with me. And I didn't feel like that. You wanted to feel like loved and special and important to somebody. And I didn't, I didn't feel particularly liked at home. I, I, at the time I was very clear that I was loved I probably have a different perspective on that now in adulthood and as a parent myself. But at the time I uh, at the time I was very clear that I felt loved, but I didn't really feel liked. And that. Wow. Yeah, that it just makes me so sad, actually, to say that out loud. Um, Why do you think you felt that way? I suppose I think at some point I became aware that there was some eye rolling. At, uh, you know and I, I can't I, I'm it's it's quite fuzzy it's you know when there's something that you just know has always been there that you can't actually really pinpoint it's just a sense that I've always had and maybe because my memories are not very well they're not really there before the age of 11 that I connected so much that 
I don't want to say dislike, maybe that's too, that's too harsh, but maybe the lack of liking for me, I associate that with after I became unwell. And, and certainly in my, in my mid-teens, I, when I was angry, that did not fly. Anger was not acceptable at home. What would happen when you expressed anger? I mean, it was ironic in the sense that my anger was not acceptable and yet there was a lot of anger in the home. So response to my anger and I, I like my behavior was never wild. Um, but the response to my anger would be more anger um, in a way that was acted out and was frightening. Um, and I was called obnoxious a lot and that that stuck with me. Um, there wouldn't have been any differentiation between calling me obnoxious versus saying my behavior was obnoxious. Um, that's something that I'm very careful about now. You know, language really matters to me, the type of language I use about myself um, and about people around me. And I was I was thinking about it at the last weekend. I was so not my best self with one of my girls and I shouted, oh, it was so, it was a bad parenting moment. But afterwards, I realized that what I had shouted was, I'm so frustrated with your behavior. <laughs> I hadn't said, I'm so frustrated with you. And mm. I thought, oh my God, that's about 15 years of me learning to change my language. What you're describing to me is you feeling quite alone in your house growing up, dismissed, invalidated. Yes. Um, I certainly probably fit into a certain role that I, you know, I was the outgoing, more outgoing, outspoken one. I did drama and I, I did like, I was the one who like gave the readings at mass and, <laughs> you know, like things like that. So I maybe fell into like a little, a little stereotype. And when I fell outside that, um, that wasn't okay. There was a lot of judgment. There was a lot of silent judgment as well. You know, the, the, sometimes it'd just be a look. And so I, I associated if I was, if I was feeling really overwhelmed and whether it was like I was feeling really low or anxious or panicking and I couldn't do what was being expected of me. I couldn't maybe perform is the wrong word, but I, I couldn't f like do things that I was supposed to be doing. I associated that with being a bad person. So and, but I can't separate myself from my illness. I, I can't make that go away. I couldn't then, I can't now. So that's a really big thing for a child to carry. And I I still have those very um, ingrained beliefs about myself that when I'm not well and I'm not doing what I think is required of me, I'm not available to people to help them out. I'm canceling plans because I'm not well. Um, Ultimately, that always comes back to, I think that's me not being a good person and I'm just actually a burden on people. What a huge weight for you to carry at that such a tender age as well. Yeah, I. it really breaks my heart now because even I'd had uh, something had happened a couple of weeks ago um, and, it, and I was talking to my husband about it and I, I can't actually remember even what it was about now, but I bawled crying and I just said to him, I'm sorry, I'm a burden. Oh. Oh, man. So even now you carry this with you? Mm. 
And I feel like I spent certainly the first half of my 20s really trying very, very hard to unlearn all the things that I felt had been hardwired in me. Beliefs that, you know, not all emotions were okay, that I was a bad person when I was um, taking care of myself actually is just what it was. Um, I've tried to, I really tried hard to unlearn those and I just couldn't. I just couldn't, I couldn't get rid of the automatic. It wasn't even a a conscious thought, even though I understand now that something happens, you have a thought and then you have a feeling. But it's like, it's so automatic that I can't even catch the thought. And I'm great at catching my thoughts now, Mm. but I still with this particular um, thing about me being a burden, I still can't catch the thought. I just go straight to the feeling. And so maybe at some point I thought, well, I'll just try and build a knowledge base instead And so I'll look at what I know about myself versus what I believe. But that was just such a huge piece of work. And so to look back at where all that started um, and just to to think back to my teens where those seeds were being planted and now to look at my children and I just think, oh my God, I can't imagine seeing that play out in my child's. And yet it was just, I couldn't, I couldn't see it from an external point of view. It was just happening within me and I just tried to survive. Yeah. And when you, when you, as you discuss this, you're saying, I felt like a burden when I couldn't do what I felt was expected of me when I was unwell. So what was life like for you in those periods where you were unwell? I don't know. Do I remember much really except the sensations that I had? You know, because I I didn't realize at the time, but because I was having hypomanic episodes, um, my head just feels quite frantic. And there's like a a really strong buildup of pressure and I can't make my brain work. I can't have clear thoughts. I just can't form straight sentences in my head. So it feels actually like I'm trying to claw at the inside of my own skull. I feel like I have a scraping sensation that's what it feels like so when I think back to how that felt that's just the sensation that comes to mind so you are navigating all of this throughout your teens which is already a really hard time for us all when we're trying to find ourselves and figure ourselves out how did life progress from there I think I, I I I just tried to get through I'd gone to college, I'd met my husband, things just were, felt a bit more manageable. Um, and I was in my last year of my degree and I randomly woke up in the middle of the night with the worst intense pain in my gut. Um, and I went to the GP in university, I was in UCD at the time. Um, and I saw her and she said to me, your bowel is inflamed and you have a kidney infection. And she just happened to say, you know, anything to do with your bowel can be stress related. And I just had this, it was like a little light bulb moment. And I said to her, I'm so stressed. And I maybe hadn't realized it in that way before, or I hadn't, um, I hadn't just thought about it or said it out loud to somebody. So it was like, I hadn't really noticed. I'd just been going along with feelings of stress, but I hadn't um, said it out loud. And she said, would you think about seeing a counselor here? And I said, yeah okay there's there's nothing to lose um and I saw a wonderful 
psychotherapist for a few months and she said to me, um, Sinead, you're not getting any better. Will you go and see the psychiatrist? So up to this point, had you received any support from a mental health professional before? When I'd had that first panic attack at 11, my parents had brought me to see a psychologist who I saw for about six months. Um, And she was a very nice person, but it was completely useless because I was going in and, and I mean, I didn't really have the language either to put on how I felt. And I, and I had a lot of language as a child. You know, I did a lot of reading. I had access to a lot of words, but I wasn't really able to put words on like my specific experiences or the the array of emotions I was feeling. And so she was doing exercises with me that were things like this situation and how do you make it better? And so, or how can you, how can you look at that in a positive way? So I saw her for six months and she was just trying to silver line, um, you know, difficult, difficult emotions. And so that was pretty useless to me. So it sounds like after that really difficult experience perhaps with the first psychologist that you were engaging with this woman in UCD in the student services center was much more helpful she was she was one of the most spectacular therapists I've ever had um she was just so blunt with me in a very very kind way um and I think the thing about going to a psychologist when I was 11 useless as it was it normalized going to see a psychotherapist so by the time I got to 20 um, and the GP was saying to me, will you see somebody? And I thought, OK, yeah, I've done this before. Mm-hmm. I know what to expect. And I sat down with this wonderful uh, therapist in UCD and I had an hour where I just like word vomited at her all the expectations that I felt in my shoulders that I was not meeting and how I was not good enough. And we were sitting there at the end and she was just giving me this look. And I said, oh, but I don't neglect myself. And she said, yes, Sinead, you do. And that was just, it was one of those moments where I needed to hear it and I was able to hear it, whatever it was about that day. And I just thought, oh, I can't continue living the way I've been living. I can't keep trying to work and do college work all the hours that there are and not resting because rest was not a thing that was acceptable really at home either. You had to be doing something for somebody else all the time. So I was just exhausted um, and unwell. Uh, and those two things don't go very well together. Um, and when you say you were unwell, how was that showing up in your life? I, it always just, I, I suppose from the outside looking in, I, and I was asking my husband about this recently, like, what does it look like? Because I know what it feels like, but it's very difficult for me to know what it looks like. And it just looks like distress. I just cry all the time and I can't really function. So I'm usually in a ball like in bed or like curled up in a corner somewhere like I physically try to to curl in um or I'll hide under something and I would have done that when there was anger in the house when I was growing up so now when I feel frightened it's like I don't I don't categorize that fear either fear of a parent or fear because I'm having anxiety or a panic attack um I just try and hide and so it just looks like uh, I'm just bawling. It just looks like a really, really upset um, woman not able to calm herself down. That's just what it must look like to the outside. Very unlike how I present when I'm not, um, when I'm not, not like that, when I'm well. Yeah. Um, so the so, psychotherapist suggested you go to see a psychiatrist? Yeah. Um, and I started seeing him and 
the first meeting I had with him, it's really intense talking to a psychiatrist for the first time because it's a long, it's a long process of just being asked a lot of questions about how you feel and your history and what you know of your family history. And it's really intense. Um, And I just remember at the end that I had told him everything really about how I feel. You know, I hadn't held anything back and he said, okay. And I thought, oh my God, what's this? You're not going to argue back. Are you not, you're not, you're not going to get me to try and justify why I feel how I feel. Because apart from my husband, who is an extraordinary person, that's what I knew. I just knew people um, arguing back, trying to get me to, well, why do you feel like that? And like now the why is not very, very important. Um, Maybe there is a why when I'm not well now, but it's certainly not the first thing that's important. Um, It's just about looking after myself. And so to be in this room with this, very experienced mental health professional who was just accepting everything I said. I couldn't get over it. He just took my word for it. He didn't dismiss you. He just believed me. Wow. Mm. It sounds like that felt very powerful. It was, it, it was, I, the fact that I still remember that so clearly 15 years later, um, I think is testament to how powerful it was. Mm. And he retired at the end of last year and I got him a present and I got him a card and I, I sobbed writing that card because I had to tell him everything that he had said to me that just gave me things that I was missing in my life that I needed. He was great. I know how lucky I was to have him. What did he give you? He just gave me validation. You know, he knew me quite well. Um, and so... I had that security of going in to see somebody who it wasn't just that I I didn't have to justify how I was feeling. He, you know, he would believe me. It wasn't trying, like I was trying to get somebody to believe me who just wouldn't. It was that he knew me so well that I didn't have to think about, oh God, like I need to tell him like what's happening in my head now or how I think. Um, he knew me so well over 14 years. He knew how I thought. Um, And the relief of that, the relief of going in to see somebody who knew me so well that I could just say how I was feeling and he knew how to take that and what I needed. He knew how hard I was on myself. Um, You know, he really could read me like a book and support like that. It sounds, somebody who believes you, it sounds like an obvious thing that everybody should have. Certainly not obvious. And people like that are not that common. In my experience, I've had a lot of I've seen a lot of mental health professionals over the years for various reasons and in various places. Um, He's extraordinary. And with working with him Mm. and him accepting you exactly as you were and allowing you to just be show up Mm -hmm. as you were, did that lead to you beginning to understand yourself better and understand your internal experiences? I think I had by the time I came to him when I was 21, I I had already started to wonder if there was, if I had an actual diagnosis. And it was because I had seen, was mostly because I had seen a documentary that Stephen Fry did back in 2006 called The Secret Life of the Manic Depressive, which is just about bipolar. And he interviews people who are celebrities and people who are not. And so much of that, I just thought that, and they weren't all the same exact experiences as me, but it was the the pull, the pull between conflicting emotions um, 
and and the overwhelm that can come and just the just the complete despair actually that comes with with being unwell um and I went to when I went to see the psychiatrist I saw him for six months and then one day I went into him and said I think I have bipolar and he said yeah that would be my diagnosis and that was how it happened and he hadn't he hadn't suggested to me a diagnosis before that we just talked about what was going on in my life and what I needed and how I felt um and medication I was taking and trying something that would help me and it was just that I asked that that I had bipolar and so by that time I was fully yeah I have a diagnosis and I I really really wanted to have a word for it because as I was saying when I was 11 I couldn't put myself in context and now I was 21 and I could because I know other people have bipolar it's not just me and to be able to normalize my experience in some way was so powerful and made such a huge difference to how I saw myself and and the road ahead I suppose in terms of trying to get better. So you're working with this wonderful psychiatrist, you now have a diagnosis. Mm. Did life start to feel much easier? Did you get better? No. Um, I think what changed is that I realized that I I had to change my behavior and what I was doing. And I needed to get really serious about how I was managing my own self-care, what my internal voice was like. And that's the work of the last 15 years. And I really struggled with just feeling like I was enough, feeling like I I was just trying so hard to be everything to everyone. Um, And so I got the diagnosis at 21 and and 25 was the first time I went into hospital. And I was in for a couple of weeks. And it was an extraordinary experience because I don't think I'd met anyone in real life who had bipolar before. I knew it had been in a previous generation of my family but it wasn't spoken about to me. So suddenly I was on a ward with about 10 other people who have bipolar and it was just so normalizing. And so I would nearly say that going into hospital in itself was a massive catalyst for getting well. What was happening in the lead up to you going into hospital? I was in a state of, um, I suppose what I recognize now is back-to-back hypomanic episodes. So I know that bipolar is is commonly associated with bipolar type one. So when people are having, you know, really big highs um, with a lot of the stereotypes that go with that, like spending lots of money or being very promiscuous, um, just being really high and then crashing lows. And I didn't have that. I was having what I understood at the time then mixed episodes that were really hypomanic so if I was just talking about how I was feeling I would say I feel very low um I'm so anxious I'm crying all the time I was very distressed but if I looked at what my thinking process was like my brain was zipping along I couldn't sleep couldn't formulate thoughts I was jumping here there and everywhere um I just couldn't it it felt like I had, there's a cog in my head that was just trying to spin along and there was something jamming it in the way. Um, and how was it that impacting your life? I just couldn't function. You know, like I couldn't, I couldn't communicate really. Um, I, my concentration was gone. Um, I just couldn't really live normally. Like going outside of the house was only okay if I was happy enough crying in a supermarket. You know, I, I just wasn't, 
I just wasn't okay. I was just upset all the time. I couldn't focus on work. Um, at that stage, I wasn't working um, because I couldn't. Um, because I would just become so overwhelmed with everything, even everyday tasks. So it just felt like my brain stopped functioning. Yeah. Um, and I would just go into back-to-back episodes like that and I just came to understand that that wasn't if I'd been looking only at how I felt I would have thought well that's depression but if I look at what my thinking process is like I can understand it as hypomania because my brain has sped up in how it's trying to function Mm. whereas depression is when your brain slows down which I have experienced but I can count on one hand the amount of episodes of depression I've had I've had hypomanic episodes pretty consistently since I was 11, more, more than I could ever hope to count. Um, and I know that that can sound, that can sound confusing, you know, when I've tried to explain to people about hypomania in the past and mixed episodes, and it doesn't really sound clear cut, but that's why I always go back to trying to, trying to explain bipolar as I don't use, I don't frame it as a mood disorder. I talk about it as um, a disorder of the brain function because it's whether my brain has sped up or has slowed down and that will give me a guidance as to whether I'm having a hypomanic episode or a depressive episode um so at least when I had my diagnosis and then I'd been to hospital um I could I could it wasn't necessarily that I was getting better very quickly but I could at least have some understanding of what was happening to me so that when I was in a hypomanic episode I knew I needed to slow down I needed to rest I needed to literally be in bed try and get sleep do things that I enjoyed just for the just because I enjoyed them um which was very difficult because that would not have been how I was raised um rest wasn't really wasn't really okay you know, you're, you're supposed to be doing things for other people, um, even to the point of exhaustion. So my twenties really felt like a whole load of unlearning a pattern of behavior that I had learned, which was that looking after yourself was selfish. And if I had, if I was going to survive, I had to figure out how to look after myself. So it felt like my twenties was a real mash of, trying to figure that out and I and I got to by the time I got to 29 I was getting married things were were more on an even keel it wasn't easy but more on an even keel by the time I I got towards 30 I was so happy to be turning 30 I couldn't wait to not be in my 20s anymore they'd just been so um messy and chaotic and turbulent and it was just when I'd gotten into my 30s and we thought maybe we could think about having a family and that had been so far off I I really thought no I I I how would I manage that so myself and my husband went to before we even decided to to try we went to see a perinatal psychiatrist in um the rotunda and we had a chat with him and afterwards my husband said to me I really thought we were going to come out of that and he was going to say no don't don't have children it it, it just it'll it, it you're going to be unwell. It's not safe. And it wasn't like that at all. He was like, yeah, let's have a chat about your medication. And, and I went through all the things that, that I was doing. And he said, you're doing everything that I would recommend that you would do. So we made a decision around my medication. I wanted to to see if I could make some alterations in preparation, preparation for pregnancy. Um, and we went away and, and I, I became pregnant then in, 
August 2019. And then we found out I was having twins. That was gas. <laughs> but, surprise. Uh, surprise. Yeah, it was it was a lovely moment actually because we went in and we were they were born just after COVID um started. So we were lucky all our early scans, it wasn't COVID and my husband could be there. And when we went in and saw it on the screen and it, it's it was obvious that there were two of them. And they just popped up and I saw them on the big screen and I thought, oh that's right. It was just I thought, yeah. Oh, that's, that's, yeah, that's right. It was just so funny that I thought there's the two of them together. It just made sense to you. Yeah. And I don't know why I wasn't surprised. Um, My, my poor husband was very surprised. <laughs> so with that, you know, you, you go to the psychiatrist. Is this going to be okay? Then you fall pregnant with twins. Mm. You become a mother of yeah. twins. Yeah. You know, how how did things go? Because I, I know you were concerned, right? That's why you went to I, a psychiatrist. Yes. And and things had gone very well really up until then. And I, but I got pregnant and and because I'd really been on it and, you know, with my GP um, and my own psychiatrist as well. I was, I saw the mental health team in uh, the maternity hospital before I got my first scan. You know, that as soon as we knew I was pregnant, my GP was referring me to the mental health team. I'd been very sick in the first trimester. I'd been very anxious in the second trimester. And the third trimester, I was just in pain because I was just so big with two with two babies. Um, but we and, and the birth was marginally more positive than negative, I would say. But it was it was uh, a, a close one for whether it was traumatic or not. It was difficult. And we were six or seven weeks into covid but had the girls, they were really well, which is not always common with twins. We were very lucky. We were only in for, for a few days and we got home. And I had been so concerned that it was the first six weeks that was a danger period for me because all your hormones drop off. And um, that that had been when I we'd had that initial um, meeting with the perinatal psychiatrist, he'd been saying to me, you know, the first six weeks postpartum, that'll be the, the tricky time. Well, the first six weeks were okay. Um, and we were lucky the girls ate and slept. Now we had an hour and a half in between, um, feeding. So it was obviously very intense, but it was when they were 10 weeks old and I had a complete breakdown and I think I was surprised and I felt like a real failure, even though looking back now, I think that is such an achievement. I made it 10 weeks without having um, a breakdown. But that's really what it was. It was it felt like a breakdown. What happened? And I, we'd been splitting shifts with the girls and my husband would have them until 3 a.m. And then he'd go to sleep next door and I'd have them from 3 a.m. Um, till 9 a.m. when he got up. I was so tired. I couldn't see straight, as any new parent will know. I, I couldn't think and I I just I just really felt like I wanted to die and I had this very clear thought and it was about seven o'clock in the morning and I had this clear thought and I just to I don't know have I ever been more frightened in my life than realizing that I had that thought of wanting to die but the girls down and they were gone back to sleep and I went downstairs I think actually I might have crawled downstairs that's how distressed I was. I couldn't even stand. And I got to the, the kitchen and I sat on the floor and I sobbed. And my husband woke up and came down and I just kept saying over and over, I'm not okay. I'm not okay. I'm just not okay. Um, And I knew that I had to get in touch with the with the unit, the mental health unit at the um, 
at the maternity hospital and I rang the next morning or you know a few hours later after after they had opened and I said I'm really acutely unwell I need the psychiatrist to call me back which she did I said to her I'm having these thoughts of death and I can't talk about it and she said well if you can't talk about it that's not a good sign now I realized later I just couldn't talk about it with her because I hadn't had a good experience with her but really luckily she rang my psychiatrist who I'd been with who gave me the diagnosis and he saw me the next day and of course I told him all about it um and he said look we need to get you some sleep and I sent my best friend a message and he told her how unwell I was and she sent me back a message which was just you think you know what like gold standard friendship is and this was 10 miles but it was the most empathetic kind loving message and at the end she said I'm coming to stay for the weekend and I know that you're going to want to say no but don't say no and she came that weekend and every weekend for the next three months oh my god and did overnight feeds with my husband and he he took all of the other overnight feeds by himself and I think the two of them together saved me You said earlier that sometimes you need to think of evidence to help you to view yourself as you really are, that you're not a burden and that you are this gorgeous, lovable person. Well, what evidence right there that is? It. I'm so, I'm just so beyond lucky to have the people in my life that I have. And I really value their opinions and... I love their values and their perspective on life. So the fact that they want to be around me and have me in their their life, yeah, I I fall back on that a lot to think, yeah, I'm I'm a good person to to have around and they know how my brain works so they validate me with that and remind me of that a lot. And did it help when your best friend came and she and your husband took over with the sleep? Did it Yes, help? because there's nothing like sleep to make you unwell when you have bipolar. It's the quickest way to become unwell is just deprive yourself of a night's sleep. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yes, but it, there were just so many other factors. The fact that we had two and that it was COVID and it was so isolating, you know, the there, there was literally nothing to do except go go out um, for walks with the girls, which I did every day. But there were no like mum and baby groups. And, you know, at the time I didn't have any twin mammy friends, which I do now. So it was really isolating. And all the time I was just having um, flashbacks, actually, I suppose, of my own childhood. I'd spoken about my own childhood and and my experience with my own mother for years and years and years before becoming a parent myself. And then the girls arrived and it was just like everything was brought up again. Every difficult experience I'd had in childhood, how frightened I was, um, how how just unaccepted my illness was. Because even though I got my my diagnosis in my 20s, um, so I was an adult by that stage, but it just wasn't accepted. It wasn't really spoken about to me. There was a bit of annoyance. If I bring it up again, I would notice some eye rolling. And at times there was a lot of anger directed towards me when I couldn't do things because I was sick. And this is after my diagnosis. So 
it just wasn't accepted. And all of that came up when I had the girls. I'd had somebody say to me a couple of years before, before I was even pregnant, when you become a mother, you'll understand your, your own mother a lot better. Well, I had the girls and I had the opposite experience. I looked at them and I thought, I cannot imagine doing to them or saying to them what happened to me in, in my home growing up. I just can't, I can't imagine that. I can't imagine them being that, that level frightened of me. I can't imagine blaming them for being sick. I can't imagine being angry with them for being sick. Um, and, and, and so it just was a long journey then of, of coming to terms with my own childhood experience and my relationship, particularly with both my parents, but particularly with my mum, um, to do with my illness in a, in a new way. And then we had uh, an incident with my mum when the girls were six months old and she, I mean, I say instant, it probably wouldn't have seemed that big of a deal to anybody else, but she crossed a boundary that myself and my husband had set for the girls. And that ended up being the last straw. It hadn't been any of the boundary breaking for me. It was just the first one for my girls. And I, and I was just so, when I realized it had happened, I feel like just something switched within me and I'd just had enough. I'd had enough. Um, and it took me a bit and I, I said that I needed to, to not see her for a while. Um, but there are some other very hurtful things that were said then. Um, and it took me about maybe a, a bit over a year for me to make the decision to not see her anymore. And I remember just one day having the conscious thought in my head of, I don't have to see her again if I don't want to. And to say that life got better overnight is a massive understatement. Something was gone. It was, it was like she, she left my life and all the shame that I had felt left with her. Oh God. It's just sad. That's it. Um, It just, it just got, it just got better. There was just something that switched in me and, and it was, it felt like a presence. I suppose it was her presence um, that just wasn't around anymore. I, I didn't have to justify myself about anything, um, but particularly my illness, particularly when I wasn't okay or when I made decisions for myself around um just my own self-care or my own choices or people who I spent my time with things that she would have had a lot of judgments about I didn't have to justify myself anymore and so it was like I looked around my life and realized that everybody who was left just loving just all had a loving presence in my life and I think I just can't I just can't get rid of the fact that I have an illness of course I can't. It sounds obvious to say, but I, I think for a long time I'd really tried to make my illness accessible to my parents and comfortable for my parents. Um, I tried not to bother them with it. And I would have thought, you know, it's just it, it's just too much, too much for them to deal with. It's too much of me to ask them to support me with it. And for whatever reason, they found it difficult to accept and to deal with the fact that I had an illness. 
and at this stage of my life now, I can understand that and I don't have a place for that in my own life. And it's extraordinary now to be free of something I didn't even realise was there. Like a, a, it was just a, a weight. I nearly visualised it. I, I find visuals helpful, but I nearly visualised it as a like a backpack with just a load of rocks that I was carrying around. And and I stopped having a relationship with her and it was like I could pause and half the rocks in my backpack were gone. And it, I was just lighter going forward. And I think it's not even that it's just for me, but also it's for the girls. I want to model to them. Actually, I say that um, and I, I nearly want to take it back because my value is, because there's me saying, well, yeah, it's for the girls. And in my head just then I thought, no, Sinead, it's, it's actually because you also just don't deserve to have that. You know, I deserve to have a life surrounded by people who love me yeah, and people who accept me, people who make room for my illness when it comes into the room with me because it goes into every room that I go into. Um, and that's what I have. And estrangement is a very, very painful process. I'm not I'm not going to sit here and be like, yeah, it was great, you know, on every level. It was it was definitely more positive. Things got better, but there's a lot of things to work through when you're going to be estranged from a parent. Um, and the upshot then really of that was that my I, I really stopped seeing my dad as well by extension. Dad got sick shortly after I'd stopped seeing him. And then he died earlier this year. And no one told me. Oh, she made. That must have been incredibly painful for you. I find it really hard to wrap my head around the fact that that, that happened. Yeah. And that, for the rest of my life, that will be my story. That I, I wasn't told. That um, I wasn't told that my dad died. And so I found out because a friend of my mum's knew she told her daughter and her daughter told the people that I was friends with I hadn't seen in a couple of years. And I got two messages simultaneously from both of them that said, oh, we've just heard about your dad. I'm really sorry. My husband walked in and I said, I think dad's died. How do we, how do we find out? Um, and so I messaged them back and said, I didn't actually know. And can you tell me how you knew? Um, and then, um, my dad was very well known in, in our community. And so, um, I started getting messages on Instagram from people I grew up with. And then I checked on my Facebook account, which I only used for like mammy groups. And I, I was getting messages from people I didn't even know who were messaging to say, you know, what a good person dad was. And he really was. I just can't, I just can't believe that that's what's part of my story yeah. now. Mm. And so we did have a relative come to the house the next day. My husband went out and had to say, well, yeah, we already know. We've got some messages already. Um, and I, I think the thing, the thing that keeps me going 
with that is that when I look back over the whole course of um, how it came about that I, I'm estranged from my parents, I wouldn't take back anything that I did. And I wouldn't take back anything that I said. Because everything that I did was, this is my value. I, I want to stand up for myself. I want to say that when you do that, um, and it hurts me, and I tell you that it hurts me, but you continue to do that, that's not okay. Mm. Um, and that's really the only thing that makes it better, that I can look back and say, all of my actions, I'm happy with. Yeah. And it's still really painful. But I don't, I don't know, does life really get any better than that, than you can say, because life just is painful. But to be able to look back and say, I did what I did and I'm happy with it. Yeah. How has life been for you since stepping into your power and putting those boundaries in place that were important to you and since starting to look after yourself? I think if I went back to 21-year-old Sinead and I told her what life was like now, she absolutely would not have believed it. I have a home with my partner. It's our 19th anniversary in a few weeks. The amount of things we've gone through together is really enormous, especially with my illness, that we have our girls and they're well and they just started preschool and we have our lovely home, which we're so lucky to have. And I have a job. I never thought I'd work again. So that I work and I work in the area of mental health, which I love and I have wonderful people around me and I I just know that I live a fulfilled life. I would not have thought that possible. And so life is really, really good. I know I'm sitting here crying. <laughs> <laughs> um, because when I look back, there's a lot of things that make me sad. But it's really good now. And I, it's just, it feels like such an achievement for me. Yeah. Um, And I look at it as an achievement for myself that I was supported through by people who love me. But it's an achievement that's mine. During today's conversation, Sinead spoke again and again about the belief she held that she had to put other people's needs above her own, even to her detriment. This belief is one that is very regularly expressed in my therapy room. We feel guilty for saying no. We feel bad for putting boundaries in place. We feel lazy for resting or having a slower paced day. We feel selfish for doing what we want to do rather than what we perceive as expected or requested of us. So many of us struggle to allow ourselves to consider our needs and how we can meet them. Our need for rest, compassion, connection. Our need for space, time, boundaries. Our need to feel safe, fulfilled and at peace. Our need to live a life that feels authentic and meaningful to us. Where did we learn that we aren't allowed to consider our needs and to meet them? Where did we learn that the needs of other people are more important than our own? And not just that, but also, 
when did we start living such busy and fast-paced lives that leave us so disconnected from ourselves and the needs we have yet are so detached from? If my words resonate with you, I am here to remind you that your needs matter. In fact, not only do they matter, but they are incredibly important as our needs guide us to live a life that feels fulfilling, peaceful and joyful. We exist to live lives that are more than work, more than laundry, more than our long list of responsibilities. And without giving ourselves permission to consider every single day how we are and what our physical and emotional needs are, we will never feel true happiness or contentment. Recently, I locked myself out of my house before one of my client sessions. In that moment, as I was trying to get back into my house in time to begin my session, I was so preoccupied that I didn't realise how cold I was. It was only when I had found a solution to my problem that I was present enough in my body and in my reality to realise I was freezing and to zip up my coat to keep me warm. I share this example with you because we are so often living with such a sense of urgency or responsibility that we completely disconnect from our needs and so fail to meet them. How often are you so consumed with a sense of urgency or responsibility that you are neglecting your needs? Consider that for a moment. How many times have you not eaten because you were too busy? How many times have you not allowed yourself to rest? How many times have you disconnected from your emotions or dismissed them because you felt you didn't have the time or space to process them or sit with them? How many times have you said yes when you wanted to say no? What have you done that you didn't want to? Consider this too for a moment. When our needs are met, we feel happy, grateful, safe, loved and calm. However, when we aren't meeting our needs, we often feel sad, fearful, angry, tired or lonely. Where on this spectrum do you currently lie? And most importantly, What are your needs today, this week, this month? If my words resonate with you today, I strongly urge you to spend some time sitting with yourself to consider all of the questions I've just asked. Grab a pen and a piece of paper and give yourself the gift of connecting with yourself and with your needs. And to go one step further, Contemplate too how you can meet these needs. What a powerful exercise this will be for you to complete. And one you absolutely deserve to do. When putting pen to paper, I suggest you give some thought too to the barriers that get in the way of you meeting your needs. List them and if you feel able to do so, List too how you can protect yourself from these barriers. For you deserve so much to meet your needs, regardless of how busy life is or of the beliefs you hold that tell you otherwise. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. 
Be sure to like, subscribe and follow me at The Wellness Psychologist on Instagram if you'd like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I have listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial. Today's podcast is very proudly sponsored by my absolute favourite Irish skincare brand, Ella and Joe Cosmetics. With formulas that are powered by plants and backed by science, Ella and Joe are dedicated to creating high quality, luxurious skincare products that actually deliver results and that create magic moments in your day. Whether your skin is dry, dull, or just in need of a pick me up, the Ella and Joe range will put the joy back into your skincare routine. Find your skin confidence again by shopping Ella and Joe's beautiful products on ellaandjoe.ie using discount code UNSPOKEN for 15% off.